0: You have your Bibles, please turn with me to Revelation Chapter Four. Revelation Chapter Four. I will read the entire chapter. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a Jasper stone and a Sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne, flashes out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. This is a powerful um, theme in a passage, and I hope, with God's help, to uh, walk through it this morning. You know, heaven, in our day, heaven is a very popular topic. It, it's a theme of many songs and uh, books and, and even movies. Um, the popularity of heaven is, is not necessarily limited to the Christian community. In fact, I would say it's even more of a popular thing in, in our secular world because it's a reoccurring theme of secular songs and books and other media outlets which needless needless to say they do not use the bible as their guideline i remember hearing a song years ago about how wonderful life was and how it was basically this big party and the repeated anthem was everybody wants to go to heaven but nobody wants to go now Right. So, so in other words, the, it, it, it encapsulates this sentiment that the, the world is so good and what we are experiencing now cannot be any better, and so we want to live as long as we can doing whatever we want to do and then go to heaven where God will escort our idol-worshiping, self-loving souls into heaven because, of course, we all know that God is a loving God. So that idea, it can't be any further from Paul's perspective to this world and, and the world to come. He said, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. Nothing here was so inviting to Paul that he would prefer to stay here rather than to go and be with Christ. And so for the Christian, heaven lays before us as this great motivation to endure hardships of this world. Because Peter says it contains an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will never fade away. So there is confidence that Christians have, even those brothers and sisters who are being persecuted, because they have a confidence which cannot be shaken by the events of this world because our citizenship is in heaven. Jesus himself provides with what is perhaps maybe the most precious promise for us as we consider And anticipate heaven. He said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you you may be also. And so, in stark contrast to the world's view of heaven, Jesus' promise is that one day we're going to be welcomed into heaven by Christ himself. And that's what we long for as Christians, right? That's what the fulfillment of his promise, that moment when faith is turned to sight. So while there are probably many books available today about supposedly heavenly visitations, I would be highly cautious and uh, moderately critical, to say the least, of those. I I would submit to you and all of us that, that what we can say about heaven, what we need to know about heaven can be said with confidence so long as we stay within the shorelines of Scripture, right? We have been given what we need to know. So to be sure, I, I want us to recognize that the thought of heaven and meditation on the reality of heaven is a good thing. It can and should fill our hearts with wonder and worship when we think of the, of the glories that heaven contains and what we will enjoy when our Savior comes for us as he has promised. Henry Scogel said, It will be very effectual that we frequently raise our minds toward heaven and the joys that are at God, God's right hand. It would be very effectual for us to do those things. J.C. Ryle said, Now surely if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to become acquainted with it. Because, brethren, the fact is that, that the world is so full of sorrow and pain that we can hardly pass through a single day without being reminded that we're living in a world which is under a curse. And yet that's why we have, to re- we, we, we have to keep our minds focused on our inheritance. That's why we can rejoice at the thought of Christ's return when we are taken into his presence and we live in internal, the eternal manifestation of his presence. So we, as of all people, as Sean was saying earlier, have reason to live with joyful anticipation because we know that this world is not our home. So today I want to look at Revelation chapter 4 and just get a glimpse of what heaven is really like and hopefully encourage encourage us to set our hearts on heaven according to God's Word as He has revealed it to us. Revelation 4 is a scene which is recorded by the Apostle John as he was given a, a vision. In his own words, he was in the Spirit when he saw these things, meaning he was given a vision of heaven that he might record what he saw for the saints who followed after him. And that's why we have such confidence in what we can know of heaven, because we have wholly inspired Scripture by which we can know, at least in a small picture, of what is awaiting us. I just want to give a qualifier. As some of you know, just reading this chapter, Revelation is a glorious book, but it is also a highly symbolic book. Um, it, It requires... A lot of careful thought and study, and and chapter 4 is the beginning of of this section which contains some pictures of of rainbows and living beings and elders on thrones and burning lamps and all. We need wisdom to interpret this, and I don't claim infallible wisdom by any means, but I do think that in this chapter we can follow along with John without getting too stuck in the overanalyzation of what these symbols are. Uh, I want to call our attention to the main point of this text and not get too bogged down. I also want to say that this text deals not so much with our eternal existence or our future in the surroundings on the new heaven, new earth, as much as it is focused on heaven's current events. John was given a vision of what was to take place in the future. This chapter is, is the description of what he saw at the beginning of his vision. This is what he saw when he opened the door. And walked through it. And so I want to look at this chapter in three headings. The scene of heaven, the citizens of heaven, and the songs of heaven. We'll go through it first to just look at the scene and then return to look more closely at those who occupy heaven before looking at the songs of heaven. So the scene of heaven. What, what we're going to see in this chapter, uh, some of them, you might be tempted to think that they're not realities. But one thing that is abundantly clear is this we have before us a vision of reality. This this is is one of the things that, well, perhaps some things are veiled by symbols, but heaven is a real place. God inhabits eternity, but his manifest presence is displayed in heaven. John records for us the, the account of how this took place, and he begins by saying he saw a door standing open in heaven. So this begins a divine revelation of a scene in heaven, which was intended for John to see and write down for us to benefit. This, this kind of vision, I might say, is not, or this transportation into heaven is not meant to be commonplace for believers. Don't fear if you've never had a vision of heaven. In fact, rejoice that God gives you the faith to believe what he's written in his book more than these confusing visions that so many people seem to have. It is specifically given as a means by which believers for the entire existence of the church can be sure of heaven's realities. And so we begin with John's first description. He says, he sees a throne standing in heaven. The throne of God is a primary theme of the book of Revelation. In fact, the the word throne is used 62 times in the New Testament. 47 of those are in the book of Revelation. It is a constant theme of this book. And John wants us to notice it even in this chapter because it is mentioned many times as we have seen. Now notice also the placement of the throne. If you pay attention to reading down through this text, all through it says, around the throne, in the the center of everything, stands this throne. All of heaven seems to be centered on the throne. So no matter where you are, you're facing the throne of God. Verses three, four, five, and six, they all repeat this anthem of around the throne or out from the throne. Everything is centered upon the throne. And so that communicates something to us that no matter what we see in our world, whatever chaos goes on, there is a place where the supreme ruler sits ruling over it all. There is a place, no matter how many so-called powerful men rise up with their armies and gather themselves against God and his people, they are all but dust in the scales, Right, that they do not rise so high in power so as to threaten him who sits on the throne of heaven. And so I believe we're given this scene as a measure of comfort for us because the people of God, though they may be persecuted in many ways and counted as the scum of the earth, they are held up. The the everlasting arms of God are underneath his saved. They are never on their own, never forgotten. There is indeed, as we will sing, a higher throne than all this world has known. And so John then says one was sitting on the throne. He sees the throne, and then he recognizes there is one sitting on the throne. And brethren, this is a great reminder to us that there is a living God sitting on the throne of heaven, even as we speak, ruling providentially over all of his creation. We are not deists who think we have some divine being that created us and just lets everything carry on in whatever manner we choose. We recognize and glory in the truth that God is a living God and sitting upon the throne, upholding and sustaining everything and everyone, including all of us who are borrowing oxygen from him right now. That's the God we serve. And so this reality I hope to communicate to us through this vision is that we serve and worship a living God. God or John did not arrive in heaven only to find glorious surroundings and beautiful things and no one home. He found the supreme being, God, the eternal one sitting on the throne. Now brother, how easy is it for us to come to this house of worship and give so little attention to him whom we are worshiping. We, We call that going through the motions. Jesus calls that hypocrisy. Brethren, we're drawing near to the ancient of days. We're singing the praise of the eternal and glorious God. We're worshiping the one who has adopted us. We're worshiping the same God whom heavenly beings cannot stop singing about. And so the reminder is this. We are not here to perform rituals. Amen? We are here. We gather together this day and every Lord's day to worship God, the one true, eternal, center stage, throne occupying, ancient of days. That's whom we come to worship, and that is a privilege for us. And so John's attention is being pulled back and forth, but he, he recognizes then that there is a, a rainbow which is encircling the throne of God. Just, just for a, a moment, contemplate the overwhelming glory of the vision that John is seeing and try to imagine taking this all in and trying to write it down in such a way that other people would be able to comprehend it. I mean, he's seeing glory untold, beauty that is indescribable, and yet John is given the opportunity to behold it and the task to describe it. So so here's a beautiful rainbow encircling the throne, which has an appearance of this emerald. And the question may be in your mind, why a rainbow in heaven? And again, these are things which require us to... wisdom and and interpretation, but I, I think, if we remember back, the rainbow was given as a sign of God's covenant to man, a symbol of divine mercy that God would not destroy mankind again. It was a sign to Noah that the storm was past and rest was coming. It's as though every time we see a rainbow, even today, we should be reminded of God's mercy towards mankind through the person of Jesus Christ. So conceivably, this could be a picture for us of the Holiness of God and the grace of God meeting in one place as it did at Calvary. We have his holy throne standing in the center, but encircling the throne is the rainbow, a picture of his grace and his covenant with his people to save them and his willingness to save sinners. So perhaps this rainbow is displayed in heaven, even in heaven, to remind us of the covenant of grace whereby we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Because for all of us, our entire relationship with God is based solely upon His covenant with us and nothing in ourselves. So perhaps this is just a visual reminder that that we were fallen creatures with the sentence of eternal judgment looming over us until God in his mercy gave us his covenant and sent his son to be our propitiation. Brothers and sisters, we will never outlive the reminder that we are saved by grace alone. We'll never outlive that. And so as John takes this all in, his eyes pan out again where he sees 24 thrones and upon them 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and wearing golden crowns. I want to speak of these elders again under the next point, but just notice the layout of heaven. These elders and thrones were around the throne of God. Yet there's, there's a certain amount of splendor and glory given to them. They're arrayed in fine clothing and wearing golden crowns, but they're not receiving any praise. They are focused upon God, giving him the glory. And we see that in verse 10, they all fall down and worship him. So I have to guess John's attention is once again jolted back to the throne where he sees flashes of lightning and sounds and and peals of thunder pouring forth from this holy place. And one can only imagine the thoughts that John has going through his head at this moment. It's it's, it's likely that he just wanted to to fall down and worship. He wanted just time to take everything in, but, but he sees all of this. And just in this concise statement, he says, Out from the throne, flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Perhaps he is just so overtaken with fear by what he even sees. These peals of thunder and bolts of lightning are symbolic as well, but what's it pointing to? What are we to learn? I think we should summarize this aspect of it in one word. Power. Power. Lest any one of us begins to feel as though we would deserve to be in this magnificent hall of grandeur. John tells us that this display of power is originating from the throne. The throne of God is a place of terror because we recognize the unrivaled power of him who occupies it. In 1 Samuel 2, we read this. Those who contend with the Lord will all be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. You see, even in the Old Testament, we see that Joseph's brothers were terrified to approach Joseph because they knew he had power to do as he wished. And, and Esther, she, had, she was terrified to approach the king because he had power to do as he pleased with her. How much more? Would mere men fear and tremble to approach the one who sits in the heavenly throne? Who can know the power of God? Job asked that question. He said, behold, these are the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? We don't know how powerful God is. No one can be in the presence of God and think lightly of it. You you say, oh, we're supposed to come boldly into the throne of grace. What of that? Yes. But when you recognize the reality of that throne and what it truly is, it's even more astounding that you and I would be welcomed into this holy place. We can only come before the throne of grace because we're confident in Christ's blood taking away our sin. No one, no one comes boldly before the throne of grace until they have knelt humbly before the cross of Christ. No one. Because the power of God is brought forth in such a way, if you were to read this in the next few chapters, you would say that God is going to destroy all who have sinned unless they are covered in the blood of Christ. And so while this throne gives us a measure of comfort, we should also retain a sense of fear. Who is this God? What majesty and power, what awe and reverence we must have for him. We know that God's throne is a place of justice and judgment. So John's attention is focused on the throne, but then he sees something else. He says there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne in case we wonder what this imagery is communicating, John so kindly interprets this for us. He says, these represent represent the seven spirits of God. Seven is a number of completion, of perfection, meaning this represents the full influence of the Holy Spirit. If you were just to look back at, at Revelation 1, verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is just just a picture of the Holy Spirit and his full influence there before the throne. So here in this chapter, we find the throne of God being the prominent feature. But we also see the the Holy Spirit before the throne. If we were to keep reading in in chapter 5, in verse 6, John says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a, a lamb, standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. We see the Lamb of God. And so what we're seeing is, is, is that we have before us this picture of the triune God being revealed. So you want to know what heaven is like? It's a place where, where the Holy Trinity is revealed to us in ways we cannot fathom. God the Father Given no specific description because no one has ever seen God. The Holy Spirit, symbolized by these burning lamps because He is Spirit. And we see the Son, the Lamb of God, the man Jesus Christ. How can heaven contain such royalty? I mean, you think about the glory that is revealed here. And then, and then John goes on and he's just running out of vocabulary. He's struggling now because in verse 6 he says, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, something like crystal. And I don't want to spend much time here, but this could symbolize a number of di- different things. But consider the description. It was something like a sea of glass. He couldn't quite put his finger on it, so it's not like it's an ocean, but it's the imagery of a sea that came to his mind first. And he says it was like crystal. And so what he's trying to communicate to us is something vast and beautiful. And He just tries to grasp for some comparisons. Obviously, he's under the holy inspiration, but these are the things that, that he uses to describe it. So what are we to say of this? Nothing dogmatically that I would say, but this picture of a sea of glass could simply refer to the vast expanse of heaven that lays out before us that no eye can see its expanse. You go to the ocean and you see as far as you can see and it goes considerably beyond that. Whatever John sees, he's communicating to us that it is both both vast and beautiful. Brothers and sisters, the sheer beauty of heaven and what John saw defies any language. Vocabulary only goes so far when you're describing infinite beauty. And then John gets to these otherworldly creatures I want to speak of those more in a few minutes, but just notice the scene. These these heavenly beings. Notice that they're not just floating on clouds and playing harps, right? I and mean, we already get this silly picture out of our minds. And I, I recognize you're not thinking that, but I hate the way these are. Heaven is so often portrayed as just this mindless existence, boredom from an eternity of repetition. These beings are not that. They are, however, ceaselessly engaged in praising God. They're always occupied with one person. Holy, 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 they sing. And then John sees, as he hears this heavenly song repeated, he notices some commotion and he, he turns and he sees these elders who were mentioned before and he, he notices that they're, they're removing their crowns and they're casting them before the throne and they're singing a song of their own. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. What are we seeing in these pictures mentioned by John? We are seeing all of heaven, no matter how grand or how small, from the least to the greatest, from the highest of created beings to the most miserable of us who was redeemed, all have the same desire and occupation to worship the triune God. Now you notice that that these living beings who are nearest to the throne and glorious and powerful and they're praising God, but those who are further out, they represent the redeemed, the church, the saints, they all fall down before him, they remove their crowns, they rid themselves of anything that would bring them glory and them praise and they humbly proclaim the worth of God. Do you recognize what happens when you see the glory of God? whether by faith in this life or by sight in the next. You cannot stand. You cannot even sit before him. You must fall on your knees and humble yourself immediately when you are faced with the glory of God. It's too much. It's too overwhelming, and we echo this song of the redeemed. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. That's why if you read history and you read of these revivals that have come through our land in years gone by, you would read of people who were so aware of the presence of God that even in a church service they would be struck with the power of his presence and they would not move for hours. Because they have beheld the glory of God. Have you seen him like this? Have you seen the glory of God? Have you seen him revealed for all that he is? This is the scene in heaven. But then let's talk about the citizens of heaven. Who, who do we find there and what, what can we learn When we finish reading verse 2, sometimes we, we, we think, oh, John's going to give us this description, this revelation of who God is, and we're going to be able to lay eyes upon him in some way that we have not before. We want John, in some ways, I think, to give us a description of who he saw on the throne because we want our faith to be verified. We want to be able to say we know that we're not believing in vain because somebody has, saw, has seen God. But here we see John just giving us symbolisms by which we can understand something of the glory of God Comparisons which speak of indescribable glory yet leave us without an image to put in our minds. Because 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light. And so John sees this and just gives a brief comparison and leaves it there. It's interesting that one commentator said, It is remarkable that John gives no description of him who sat on the throne. Neither do Isaiah or Ezekiel attempt to describe the appearance of deity, nor are there any imitations of that appearance given from which a picture or an image can be formed? We are we are guarded from idolatry. And so we don't want to get too bogged down in our attempts to understand these various word pictures of precious stones and brilliant light that describe him who was on the throne. Such brilliance was seen there that words are insufficient. But brethren, we don't know God by some physical description that we can lay eyes on, but by faith in the revealed Word. That's how we know God. And so aside from John omitting specific details about God, I want to call your attention to something that I mentioned earlier. I recognize we all come from a variety of backgrounds, and we've all been influenced by our upbringings to a certain degree. But if you are one here this morning who has been taught to think That Christianity is a list of things to do, laws to follow, or a checklist to go through each week. You know, you read your Bible, you go to church, you don't do certain things that are blatantly evil. If you do all these things, you're considered a good and normal Christian. Or if you think that, that church is what you do on Sundays because you should at least give God some measure of recognition for keeping you out of trouble and giving you a somewhat easy life. If, if the songs and the prayers and the scripture readings and the sermon are all things to endure for the sake of appeasing your conscience, if church is a weekly ritual and nothing more, we need to recognize, we need to make it clear that we have not gathered in this building to perform some kind of ritual that appeases our conscience or in some way appeases God. God. We gather on the Lord's day and every Lord's day for the express purpose of giving glory and honor and thanks to the one true and living God. That's the purpose. It's not to do a certain amount of things that make us feel better about ourselves. John didn't get to heaven and see it's all a sham and there's no eternity and no God. There is one who occupies the throne. And we've gathered here together to worship Because it's our heart's desire to do so. That's what our desire is, to praise him. When we open our mouths to declare his praise, we are participating in a heavenly anthem. Here on earth, in this little church, we are joining angelic choirs, declaring the worth of our maker. That's not a ritual. That's a privilege. Amen? It is a privilege beyond imagination. So I just ask you, have you come with that in mind? Have we entertained the thought that our words, our songs, our prayers, they're not bound within this building. They all rise up into the very presence of God. So we want to sing these songs with the same joy and same zeal that we will in heaven when faith becomes sight. We want to pray as though we're standing before the throne of God in this indescribable glory. Because brothers and sisters, if we could lift our spiritual eyes and look past our present situation, past our surroundings, past our circumstances, past these walls, and past all of the great expanse and into the very throne room of God, we would see Him. He's there, being worshipped day and night by heavenly beings, all ascribing praise to Him. You say, I know that. But I want to emphasize it because we are far too addicted to the physical and not fixated enough on the spiritual realities. We cannot lay our eyes on God, but faith grasps what eyes will never see. And we're gathered here to express worship to an unseen, but so real God. So the flash is this. This day is by far the best day of the week. And corporate worship is such a joyful privilege. There's nothing ritualistic about it. It's ordered because God has ordered it, and we know what brings Him honor and praise, but we're engaged in what we do. We gather to worship, to rejoice with Him in song and and hearing the Word and praying to Him. It is the best day of the week by far. Amen, somebody. It is the best day. And so we are privileged to, to gather together in His name and thank and praise Him. By the way, I love coming here to church to worship with you guys. I'm in no way laying this on us as some kind of chastisement. I'm just saying. Anyway, so God on the throne, 24 elders. So the question then is, who are these elders? Well, I think we can be certain it's not speaking of 24 versions of Chuck. These are not local elders within the church gathered around this celestial uh, church service, but... These are representatives of the entire Church of Christ throughout all the ages. And I say that there are different interpretations. I I say that with the backing of, of a number of, I think, faithful commentators, but also because of their description and the number of them. Numbers are really important in Revelation as we think about interpreting it correctly. And the number 24 most Bible scholars believe is representative of the Church, both in the Old and New Testament, 12 tribes. Old apostles number 12 is the 12 is the number of completion and so this is a symbolic picture of the entirety of the redeemed race of the saints And so the description of these elders is also very telling. They're clothed in white garments, signifying the cleansing blood of Christ and being clothed in his righteousness. Jesus said in Revelation 3, he said, I advise you to buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments, so that you may may clothe yourselves. See, these robes are symbols of the saints being covered by the righteousness of Christ. And they're wearing golden crowns, which a number of authors in the New Testament allude to. Peter said, he's encouraging the elders of the church. He said, when the chief shepherd appears, you're going to receive the unfading crown of glory. So keep going. Keep going. Paul, in exhorting Timothy, said, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also those who have loved his appearing. James said, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Just to remind us that these elders are wearing things that have been given to them by God. They do not earn them. They were given to them by God. The white robes are from him. The crown is from him. All that they have, all that we shall have in heaven, is of him. And so we should also observe that they're sitting on thrones, And I I, I wonder if this communicates some sense of belonging, some sense of rest, some sense of peace. Remember what Peter said about the reason Jesus died? He said Jesus died to bring us to God. Is this not the ultimate fulfillment of that reality where saints are gathered around the throne and they see God and their faith is turned to sight and they're sitting, they're at peace, they belong there. And so unless you miss the obvious impl- application, this is you one day. We're going there, brethren. This is us. Now, he he does mention the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that John just simply notes the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's there, but he's little is said of him. So for our purpose this morning, I just want to notice that heaven is a place where the triune God in all of his glory is manifest in the three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then finally we get to these four living, mysterious creatures. And I think this is probably the most mysterious part of the whole chapter. Who are they or what are they? And I, I'm not going to go through it in depth. I have, I just don't have time. And quite frankly, I think we can understand some of their purpose without staying here the rest of the afternoon. But let's just notice the placement of these beings. They're in the center around the throne. These mystical beings are the nearest of creation to the throne of God. Likely meaning that they are perhaps the most powerful, glorious beings God has, has created. They are at the place of the most prominence, the place of power, nearest to the throne. And so to be sure, there are multiple inter- interpretations of who these creatures are to represent. Some old writers actually think they represent the four Gospels, while others are very convinced that they represent ministers of God who stand between God and His people. I'm convinced, however, in, in reading different things that what John is describing here are the same creatures which Isaiah and Ezekiel saw in their visions, and they are called the cherubim or seraphim. Ezekiel 1 He just says, I I looked, and behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud of fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it. Later, he says, within it, there were figures resembling four living beings. And then he goes on to describe what we see here in this chapter. Isaiah 6.2, which was referenced earlier, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. So as we gather from Scripture that, that God's throne, around his throne, are these four living creatures whose primary occupation is to praise God for his intrinsic worth. Namely, his holiness and his eternality. And we see that from Revelation 4, 8, where he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the song that they sing. And so I just want to briefly make a couple comments regarding them. Because of their proximity to the throne... I think one man's commentary, he said this, These close attendants represent and yet transcend the whole of created order on earth and in heaven, and they ceaselessly praise God for his attributes. So what are we to make of these celestial beings? Why did God make them and why did he allow Ezekiel and Isaiah and John to see them? I mean, if they are indeed the purest beings who transcend all the creation that God has made, if they were created in order that God might be praised ceaselessly, what, what are we to learn? I, I think we can learn something about God, for one thing. God created these mysterious beings to praise him, and they do. He also created you and I to praise him. And if you are redeemed, this is your great purpose, to praise him, to worship him. I mean, have we not read there in in the book of Psalms, it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let them say so. All that we do is to be done to the praise of God's glorious grace, as we read in Ephesians. And we need to be reminded, brothers and sisters, of the unspeakable privilege it is to draw near to God in worship these beings have never sinned they have never needed forgiveness they have never needed a new heart all of which we have needed and yet here we are even in this moment with all of our sins and all of our failures and all of the things that occupy your hearts and your minds even now which should be given to god and yet because of the grace of god we draw near to him in prayer and in fellowship and in hearing his word and there's no terror of his wrath this morning among the redeemed. There's no fear of punishment. There's no insecurities to hide from him because we've been washed in the blood. We are a blessed people. We are a blessed people. This is why we speak of joy and reverence and worship. Joy, because who can contain what, when we realize what we've been given and the salvation we've received, it produces joy, but it also produces reverence because we're aware of who God is and the privilege we have been given to draw near to him and worship. We know that we don't come to him for our own merit. Solomon had some interesting words in Ecclesiastes 5. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So, the scene of heaven, the citizens of heaven, and finally and quickly, the songs of heaven. In verses 8 and 11, we see what seems to be the climax of this chapter. When these living beings recite this doxology, and the elders who represent the entire redeemed race hear it, and they're so moved with worship that they join their own song and praise as they fall down before the Ancient of Days. And there's just a couple of things that I want to mention as we think about these songs. First of all, notice their power. Notice their power. If you see how the entire focus of the lyrics are given to express the worthiness of God. That's all that they're singing about. And brethren, the power of the songs, the power of the songs are in the truth they contain. We can sing a lot of frivolous things and there's no power in that. Well, you begin to sing about the truths of God. And you recognize there's, that, that's why it is such a powerful avenue of worship to set the truths of Scripture to music, and we sing them to God. But then also notice the primacy of the songs of this heavenly worship service. A primary occupation is heaven, in, in heaven is to praise the name of God, everlastingly. This isn't intermittent praise, but everlasting praise. This doxology continues day and night, year after year, generation after generation, because you and I get sleepy and tired. We get a little bored after about two songs, right? And then we're off to something else. But the praise of God, while you work and while you sleep and while you eat and while you do all these things, it is being proclaimed and it is never exhausted, eternally. And so, Maybe the question arises in your mind like it does in mine. How can someone sing a song that's never ending about the same person? Right? Because we get, we get weary, we get tired, we're done with singing now, and we go on to something else. But now I, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we're going to live out our eternity on our knees and only recite God's attributes. But we re- need to recognize that heaven is an unfolding of greater and greater comprehensions of the infinite God. So put away with God's help any thoughts about boredom in heaven. No one's going to be bored there. No one's going to be bored with God because the holiness and infinity of God assure us that we will never exhaust His glory. It's as though in our day... We have, with the help of the Holy Spirit and the revealed Word of God, we have beheld a, a candle of glory flickering. But the essence of who God is in himself is brighter than a thousand suns, and we will never exhaust it. So the, the, the power and the primacy and then the purpose of the songs, we see there in verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, And because of your will, they existed. Brothers and sisters, you and I were created to ascribe worth to God. That's why you were created. We read in Isaiah 43, he says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. You were made for this. You were made to bring Him glory, to praise His name, to worship Him in all that we do. And so part of worship is extolling God for who He is and what He has done. Authentic worship has to flow from our hearts, not just our tongues. But, I mean, we recognize that worship is far more than just singing. It involves all that we we do. But to sing God's praise is a beautiful honor for us. In Psalm 33, 1, we read, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you his righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. So there's not going to be any mumbling in heaven. So when we sing, when we open our mouths to sing, let's do so, as we have been doing, in a way that would convince people we actually believe what we're singing about. All right? We want to praise the Lord as he has Called us to. So we have to think what a worship service this is going to be. One that we're going to have new bodies so we never grow weary, new eyes to behold God's glory so we don't faint, new tongues to sing of the highest praise, newest songs, new minds to comprehend things that we have never thought of about God. So this is the scene unfolding in heaven where. Sin does not stain a single thought or word or motivation of those who occupy heaven's courts. The worship of God is pure. It's not mixed with even a hint of selfishness or an inkling of pride. This is a picture of joyful and holy worship. I mean, just think. The manifest presence of God all around us, holy angels beside us, the enemy of Christ beneath us, all of the sin we once once fought, expelled from us, and all of eternity before us. That's the worship service. That's a glimpse of heaven that is awaiting us. And it's good for us to meditate on these glories of our eternal home. Because it can strengthen weak people. It can embolden timid people. And it can can bring joy to sorrowful people. When we think about the realities of heaven. And so, undoubtedly... There are many glorious things awaiting us in heaven, but the ultimate point of this chapter is that things in heaven, all things in heaven, all things on earth are created to praise God. Because as it says in verse 11, He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. You were made for Him. You were made for Him. And while we know little of the celestial worship service that is awaiting us when we gather As a body, and we sing and we pray and we preach and we read, we do all to the glory of God, and we do it with an eye towards eternity. Now, there's one more thing I want to do, and it's a question for us to consider. We must ask Are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? Brothers and sisters, of all the things that we might read in Scripture and behold about the glories of heaven, they do no good for him who rejects the one who is the door, the way, the truth, and the life. Are you going to be one who is welcomed into his presence on that great day? Or are you going to hear the delights of heaven, to hear about this, this great thing that is awaiting us, And do everything except for the one thing necessary to enjoy it, which is to flee to Christ. Because sadly, so many people, week after week, they come to churches and they see and hear the sign that says, Eternal Life! Eternal Life! Eternal Life! And they walk out the door and reject it. And so, who are you worshiping this morning? (laughs) Who are you worshiping? Perhaps you're like the rich young ruler and say, I've kept all the law. I've done all the things necessary. I've done everything I should do. And so the bad news about that is no person in history has been saved by keeping the law. The law is only good for bringing us to Christ. But the good news is that we are justified as a free gift by his grace, which is through the redemption in Christ. And As Mark began the service with this verse, I'll close with it. Jesus says, Come, come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden with this law that you think you can accomplish. Come to me and I will give you rest. And when you do that, you're going to find, as Peter said, you have a glorious inheritance awaiting you. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, that we are not left without a hope, without the promise of the sure word that our Savior will return for us and receive us to himself. We long for and look forward to that day, Lord. Thank you that you've promised us that we will have sufficient grace for each day because you are always with us through the power of your Spirit, giving us all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you for that. Christ's in Amen.